0: Hello and welcome back to Beyond the Canvas, an art history podcast brought to you by Musee Beauty. My name is Francisco Rivera.
1: I'm Monse Hernandez and we're your co-hosts.
0: So last episode we looked at the Impressionists and how they completely opened up the doors of the art world and ushered in this era of modern art as we know it today. But there were a lot of different very experimental artistic movements that arose between point A and point B. So on today's episode
1: we're going to be taking a look at a few lesser known movements. Today's discussion is centered around four main artists, Van Gogh, Seurat, Matisse, and Cézanne. Each of these artists pertains to a smaller movement within the post-impressionist umbrella. Expressionism, pointillism, Fauvism, and the inspiration behind Cubism. To explore these experimental styles, let's look Beyond the Canvas. We ended our last episode talking about Vincent Van Gogh, which is a perfect place to pick back up. This week, we wanted to focus more on his work from the late 1880s leading up to his tragic death in 1890. He produced most of his oil paintings in these last few years of his life, including some of his most famous works such as The Starry Night, Almond Blossoms, and The Sunflower Series. During these years, Van Gogh also produced a multitude of self-portraits, which served as visual diaries that captured the progression of his artistic development as well as the regression of his mental health.
0: Portraiture is a constant mode of expression throughout art history. It tells us so much about how humans see themselves and others, uh, different eras, cultures, movements, societies, etc. They all have different visual cultures.
1: And when an artist draws themselves, we look at their artistry in order to draw conclusions about what they were thinking and experiencing at the moment that they created these works. And they give us biographical, historic, and other information. A great example of autobiographical portraiture comes from Van Gogh's works. His self-portrait dedicated to Paul Gauguin from September of 1888 was revolutionary in his expressionist use of color. Traditionally, subjects and portraits were rendered using chiaroscuro, a technique which uses strong contrasts of light and shadow to create volume. And Van Gogh completely abandons this approach and instead uses color to structure the volume in his compositions. His unconventional choice of color is a precedent to Fauvism, which we will dive into later in this episode. Not only does this painting further reveal Van Gogh's rebellious, expressionist palette, but it also tells historians about the progression of his mental breakdown. Van Gogh had sent this portrait to Gauguin as part of a trade between the artists when he still had these hopes and dreams of creating a brotherhood of artists in Arles, Gauguin went to live and paint with Van Gogh for a brief period of time, which was an arrangement that quickly did not work out, as Gauguin said it, a result of incompatibility of temperaments. Gauguin left for Tahiti shortly after Van Gogh threatened him with a razor blade during a nervous breakdown, and it was also during this crisis that Van Gogh cut off his ear and gifted it to a prostitute at the local brothel as a token of his affection for her. And another of Van Gogh's self-portraits, self-portrait with bandaged ear from January of 1888, portrays the aftermath of this turmoil. Instead of his facial features being strikingly defined as they were in his self-portrait dedicated to Gauguin, Van Gogh painted himself covered by a hat and a bandage, hinting at his severed ear. The background here is also very different from the solid Veronese green of his other self-portrait. Behind him, there's a Japanese print hanging on the wall, which serves as a testament to his adoration for Japanese art. And there's also a canvas behind him, hinting that Van Gogh is contemplating his status as an artist and that there's still more work to come from him. And some art historians have even hinted that Van Gogh intentionally made the canvas resemble the shape of a cross, referencing his religious upbringing.
0: Right. And I can absolutely see this progression between the one self-portrait to the next, especially in this Jap- um, portrait with the Japanese print in the background. He's all covered up and everything. And we see the culmination of this progression and sort of the climax or the denouement, which depending on which way you want to look at it, of his mental health journey. And you can really see this reflected in his painting, The Church at Auvers, from June 1890, which was completed in Auvers-sur-Oise, which is where he eventually died. This is one of his final artworks before his death. Here, once again, the expressionist quality of his artwork can be seen, as well as his emotive use of color and association of that color with various psychological states. Looking at this artwork, we can see that his technique is no longer tied so strictly to that of the Impressionists, and his own unique style has started to emerge, a neo-Impressionist or post impressionist style, definitely an expressionist style. The church itself is an impressive artistic rendering, though by no means a realistic one, and features a gothic church with Romanesque chapels, and this is a church that actually exists to this day. These stylistic references seem to have been of less priority to Van Gogh as he painted the church then the presence of the church overall. Ultimately, when we look at the church at Over, though, where does our eye go and what do we think about? There's a somber tone, which is perpetuated by a bleak and a very heavy blue sky. There's The cathedral structure itself, which is rather ominous or imposing, especially when you consider that this is a place often where you are held accountable for your sins and taking into account Van Gogh's religious upbringing, there's some spiritual gravity or maybe, you know, Christian guilt to be considered there as well, looking at the end of his life, you know, judgment and whatnot. The paths leading up to the church from the bottom of the painting and away from the viewer's vantage point show very small and isolated brush strokes, the lines defining them undulate, and this method of paint application that Van Gogh uses here in these diverging paths, which you see in other works of his, where certain color values are placed adjacent to each other, but not touching or mixing, this later became a technique in Seurat's Pointillism, which developed later. These are the final days of Van Gogh's life, following his mental break and his stay at the asylum. At this time of his death, Van Gogh was not the world-renowned artist we know him for today. His paintings didn't sell and he died a poor man. Van Gogh caught up with the Impressionists just in time for their last exhibition and started picking up on their ideas, theories, and more. But for him, it was just a jumping off point on his way to discovering and developing his own unique style.
1: Beyond the Canvas is brought to you by Musee Beauty, a brand made by creatives for creatives. Musee Beauty makes creative makeup easy so you can try something new with your everyday makeup.
0: All Musee Beauty products are cruelty-free and have been formulated to seamlessly fit into your morning routine. Whether you're going for a bold editorial look or you're just getting comfortable with color, Musee Beauty allows you to be your own canvas.
1: Van Gogh was not the only artist at this time pushing the boundaries of color. George Seurat was developing the very unique style of pointillism, influenced heavily by the analysis of color. Pointillism is where an art piece is formed out of tiny dots of contrasting colors, of which are specifically placed to shape unique lights and forms in the artwork.
0: Yes, that's the definition that we know it as today in the general art world. But at the time, Seurat himself actually preferred the term divisionism, which is defined as the principle of separating color into small touches placed side by side and meant to blend in the eye of the viewer. And this really makes a lot of sense when you consider Seurat's perspective and theories on art and especially on color. At the time, he was experimenting a lot with color theory, the electromagnetic spectrum, visible light, the intersection of color and light. And things like this. And he was really combining a lot of different scientific approaches. He was combining things on a physical level in terms of the field of physics, the way that light vibrates, the frequency that it's vibrating at, the wavelength that it's vibrating at, whether that falls into our perception as humans or not. The way that shadow, of course, interacts with light and light effects in color has always been a focus of impressionists at least, here Surratt was more focused on a scientific analytical aspect of that. Something he himself said is, some say they see poetry in my paintings, I only see science. And so that really gives us insight as to the way that Surratt was looking at art as a whole was through a more mathematical, rational, logical side of things as opposed to the more emotive or the more romantic conceptions or constructions of art that we see previously. So he combined work by Michelle Eugene Chevreul, who was a chemist, as well as Newton, Physics through the color wheel and stuff like that, and his own focus on perception, which he called chromoluminarism, was based in neurological and biological sciences as well, especially when you consider psychology and heuristics and sort of the mental shortcuts that our optic brain plays on us in order to perceive vision.
1: And this is how the structure of pointillism differed from the previous Impressionist movement. Impressionism lacked color theory that Seurat used to create this artistic style that had this higher degree of precision and a more cohesion, whereas Impressionism was more about internal variety.
0: Absolutely. Like, especially with individual Impressionists, you know, whether it's Cassatt, Morisot, Monet, Van Gogh, whoever, they each have very different Impressionist styles. But under pointillism, no such thing would be possible, it seems like.
1: Because it's rational. It's objective instead of subjective. Right, exactly. Yeah, and his most famous painting, A Sunday on La Grande Jatte, is a perfect example about of how Seurat approached these issues of color, light, and form with the scientific precision that he did. Through optical blending, he juxtaposed tiny dots of color to form what he believed to be this more brilliantly luminous hue. And this painting is considered by many as the pinnacle of the art form and was even regarded as a fresh revelation of color by Van Gogh himself.
0: Right, this is something that we see at the time with color theory and the way that we perceive it But later on, I believe in the 1950s and 60s even, even going into the 70s and 80s as well, perception became, or perception was construed again through this movement of op art later, optical art. And so this is an interesting way to see one of the roots of that movement.
1: And. Syrah and pointillism is also a great example of what we were talking about in our first episode about how art transcends all fields not just artistic ones because here we have an entire movement with its foundation in scientific reasoning
0: exactly exactly This leads us really nicely, I think, into the movement of Fauvism and Matisse, which is kind of the pendulum swings the other way on it, I think.
1: Yeah, because while Seurat and Pointillism put so much importance on science and reason, Fauvism above all valued individual expression. They didn't care for academic theory or anything. It was all about the artist's direct experience and response to his subjects and the nature around him.
0: Right, it was very dynamic and intuitive in terms of the way you look at the art, the forms, the lines, the colors, et cetera. but especially the colors.
1: See, and that was the main thing about Fauvism. It was this use of intense color to portray light and space onto the canvas but in a way to communicate the artist's emotional state. And color here is separated from its normal descriptive representational purpose.
0: Right. The Fauves used color not in terms of any realistic means to represent something traditionally or the way that our eye sees it in the day-to-day world, but instead using color as a bridge to tap into some sort of human emotion or experience or something like that. The style itself, as you know, we're saying, it's very painterly, very colorful, very bright, some would even say lurid. The colors might seem a little bit disorienting, unnatural. There might be some tension there between what you're seeing and what you expect.
1: And the main artists associated with fauvism are Henri Matisse, André Duran, Georges Braque, and many others. But But for today's episode, we're going to be focusing on Matisse.
0: Right. And I think it definitely has to be said that Matisse is one of those artists whose work spans such a broad amount of time in a variety of styles that while I think you can definitely say that Matisse helped to define fauvism, I don't think fauvism helped to define Matisse.
1: It was just a starting point for his long and unique artistic career.
0: Absolutely. Which I'm sure we'll be getting into at some point on here. But that being said, I think a lot of what you see in Matisse's work is a combination of Van Gogh's expressionist artistry, you know, using color emotively, with Seurat's pointillism, which used very garish colors, but not in emotive ways.
1: In the first painting by Matisse we want to talk about is Woman with a Hat, which was actually part of the exhibition that gave the Phobus their name. Similar to how the Impressionists got their name from a critic that was trying to belittle their movement, the fauves got their name from a critic that was trying to call them wild beasts, because fauve means wild beast in French.
0: Right. Saying that their art was more rudimentary or their art didn't demonstrate as much training as a conventional, you know, contemporary piece would have.
1: And this painting, Woman with a hat, was the center of controversy when it was exhibited, because not only did it leave realistic depictions as Impressionism did, but it took it a step further by using non-naturalistic colors. This painting, Woman with a Hat, was a never-before-seen rendition of portraiture. The posing within the work is classical and reminiscent of portrait structures as they were accepted traditionally, but the colors and the brushstrokes were absolutely unexpected, never before seen.
0: Right. It's something that I think, at least if you take a contemporary conservative view of someone looking at this piece, you know, someone looking at this piece for the first time at the time that it was made would think that maybe this color is unnecessary. Maybe these extra forms and textures are not necessary to convey the truth of what the picture is showing. But I think at the end of the day, you have to remember that the Fauves were trying to illustrate a different truth with their color, a more emotive truth. And they were trying, this is one of the first instances, I think, or at least where you can really see in art, art is something that is trying to produce a response in the viewer.
1: And when looking at this painting, we can think about the Van Gogh self-portraits that we just looked at where he, didn't use chiaroscuro to create volume, he used color instead, which Matisse in this painting did at times 30. The structure of the face, her nose, is created with green paint.
0: There's also something to be said, I think, for the gaze of the woman back over her shoulder at the viewer of the portrait. A lot of the times in art history, when we look at the way that we depict people, even just people within art, we lose a lot of what is this person looking at or what is this person responding to? And this rather intimate portrait combined with these colors that are so intention and they're a little bit overwhelming, it kind of creates a little bit of cognitive dissonance there between what you're looking at and what's looking back at you. Another notable painting from Matisse's Fauve period I think that we should discuss is Open Window from 1905, which uses very highly reductive representation techniques. And again, a very fovist and vibrant color palette, which pushes impressionism further within the piece.
1: Yeah, and Matisse once said that his imperative was to interpret nature and submit it to the spirit of the picture, which he definitely did in this work of art. Once again, the absence of the chiaroscuro technique replaced by color and brushstrokes to form the composition, like, for example, in this piece in the background, Matisse uses strong reds and oranges to indicate depth through atmospheric perspective. And the brushstrokes themselves change over the surface area of the canvas, depending on the section of the composition to emphasize the different parts of the piece.
0: Right, I think it's really interesting the way that Matisse arranges his composition in these zones and sections because he even uses framing, very geometrical, precise framing. I mean, there are these concentric rectangles which are either the windowsill or the frame of the window and the shutters. It's these series of rectangles which serve to depict a three-dimensional space of depth. It's almost like you're looking at a painting within a painting, within a painting. So there are three framing rectangles, so to speak, that Matisse uses to show us that he knows how to direct the viewer's eye by creating these worlds within worlds, which is something that he did not only in this work, but even is a technique that you see later throughout as he changes style and develops style. On the whole, when you look at Fauvism, You can really recognize it based on its chaotic use of color application and color fields, as well as it almost like bombards you with a lot of visual busyness or imagery. There's a lot to look at and you instantly know with those bright garish colors that you're looking at a Fauvist piece. That's the Fauvist style.
1: And while Fauvist structured their chaotic paintings with this unnatural use of color, Cezanne started structuring his paintings geometrically and this new interest in the way Cezanne was doing things
0: kind of killed off fauvism
1: yes led to fauvism's demise
0: which makes sense given that fauvism was only a very short movement three exhibitions in three years 1905 to 1908 now shifting to Cezanne
1: Suzanne differs from the other artists we've talked about today because instead of focusing on color like they did, he prioritized the structure of a composition above anything else. He was far less concerned with the emotional role that color could produce in a painting and was instead concerned with the spatial and geometric purpose it served within the composition. His use of color didn't create emotion, it created form, and that is what's so revolutionary about Suzanne. And because he was so concerned with these formal traits and the more technical aspects of artistry, he used methodical brushstrokes as though he were constructing a picture rather than painting it. So his work remains true to an underlying architectural ideal. Every portion of the canvas should contribute to its overall structural integrity. It's as if each item within one of his still life's landscapes or portraits had has been examined not just from one angle, but from every single existing angle that the item has, a full 360. And Cezanne captured the material properties of his subject matter in a way that he himself described as a harmony parallel to nature. And it was this aspect of Cezanne's analytical time-based practice that led the future cubists to regard him as their true mentor and inspiration.
0: Absolutely, something that was really integral to Cezanne's technique and style was his approach that was very modular or unit-based to constructing forms and building space and volume within his composition. And he mainly did this by taking large and small cubes of form and color and placing them next to each other to create the image. And you can really see this, I think, exemplified in paintings from his Lestock series.
1: Yeah, so like the other artists of this time, Cézanne did spend time in Paris, but he was born in the south of France and this countryside was what he considered home. He spends a lot of his life living and working there, notably in this town called Lestac. And here he was just dazzled by the views of the countryside and he made a lot of landscape paintings of the scenery that he admired so much. And one of these works that he created while in the south of France was the Gulf of Marseille, seen from stock which he created in, in 1885. And this painting is only one of over a dozen similar landscapes that he made while living in L'estoc in the 1880s. And in these years, Cezanne's series of landscapes were dominated by these architectural forms of the rural houses that you see below, the lively greens of the vegetation, and these stunning blues of the Mediterranean Sea. And what makes these landscapes so uniquely his, though, is the approach he had of dividing the canvas into four zones, one sky, mountain, water, and the architecture. And he used block-like brushstrokes to build up these four zones into one space in the composition, which he created using bold and contrasting colors. And he made these shapes out of horizontal, vertical, and diagonal lines, making this complex grid within his works. And the result of this architectural technique is that Cezanne created compositions that seemed to surpass the status of two-dimensional by appearing to be almost three-dimensional.
0: Absolutely, I think something that is really characteristic of Cezanne's style and his work is when you look at it, it's fragmented, but it's also complete. So it's kind of a little bit like kaleidoscopic, I guess you could say.
1: And this is because instead of just studying his subject matter from one frontal angle, as artists had done in the past, he really took the time to study them from every single angle and try to capture that within his works.
0: A point of interest that I think is really notable regarding Saison are his apples. You know, I've been going on about them for... A few episodes now, um, Mm -hmm. but they held so much life within his genre paintings and his still lives. He, He said that he wanted to astonish Paris with an apple. A lot of his pictorial composition is accomplished by trying to capture what the eye actually sees in a very raw form as it takes in a view, as opposed to what we think we see or what we're supposed to see. Cezanne said that painting from nature is not copying the object is realizing one's sensations. And so these artistic techniques in his still lives are consistent with what you're talking about in his landscape in Le He creates compositions that reveal the picture from multiple contradictory perspectives. Looking at the worlds he creates on the canvas, you get the idea that he has a very shifting, angular, and yeah, fragmented view of the reality around him. And Cezanne treats form, mass, and light in such a way that he can share these perceptions with viewers of his art. The reason I bring up these apples and why I keep talking about them is that at this time in the art world, neoclassicism was emerging and historical and mythological scenes kind of were crowding out still life art and genre scenes. And maybe this is exactly what drew Cezanne towards them, but also he glorified the mundane through these apples and infused them with life through color while other artists were painting, you know, Hercules or, these great mythological figures like he was out here doing apples and landscapes and all these things. When we look at Cezanne we can really see the wave of cubism before it takes off and the degree of abstraction is elevated but looking at these still lives and landscapes we see Cezanne's own artistic style as a precedent for cubism which still has a notable impressionistic character.
1: Yeah because what the cubists took from Cezanne was the strategy of trying to depict subject matter from every single point of view. And while Cézanne still seems somewhat true to reality, the Cubists took it a step further by using that strategy to try to depict the fourth dimension. So to tie this episode together, we wanted to end with a quote by Cézanne, which says, doubtless there are things in nature which have not yet been seen. If an artist discovers them, he opens the way for his successors. And I think this quote is perfect for everything we've been talking about on this episode, because we've been talking about the movements that came out of Impressionism and how they're all their own very unique branches that also inspired subsequent movements. Before Impressionism, art, as we've talked about, was just for the most part, very realistic until the impressionist, as Cezanne's quote said, discovered these things in nature, which then inspired artists like Van Gogh to discover the color in nature, which then inspired Cezanne to uncover the form, the architectural form in nature, which then later inspired the Cubists to discover The fourth dimension, if
0: you will. Everything that's going on in this very fruitful time of artistic experimentation is providing the impetus and the momentum for later developments in modern art, for sure. I think what really interests me about this quote is this first part of it. There are, doubtless there are things in nature which have not yet been seen if an artist discovers them. And I think that that really speaks to a great role that artists actually play within society, within the world. Because I feel like currently we place a lot of emphasis on science, math, rationality, linearity, you know, we could argue Cezanne and Syrah as we're talking about in this episode, but even Cezanne and Syrah artists, and of course, Van Gogh and Matisse as well, they blast open these doors and they sort of remove this, inertia that we have of progress and of creativity of development and really you know blasting those doors open and removing limits that we don't even realize we've imposed on ourselves
1: and on that note Francisco and I would like to thank you for listening and we hope you learned something new about these early modern artists
0: Join us on our next episode, where we'll be disrupting the timeline a little bit. Until then, I'm Francisco. And I'm Monse. And this has been a look Beyond the Canvas.
1: Beyond the Canvas has been brought to you by Musee Beauty.